0: After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they, opened, they, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child with his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And, he, said, and he, arose, he rose and took the child with his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And there remained until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill the, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I will call my son.
1: I don't know about you, but I love Christmas. And uh, I, I don't think that Ebenezer Scrooge is the only person who's gotten a visit from the ghost of Christmas past, right? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, when Christmas comes, aren't you reminded of all kinds of things that have happened in the past to you, maybe around this season? And usually, those memories, at least for me, center on the home and the family, uh, major events that have happened. And uh, some of those events are good, and some of those events are bad. Uh, I I don't think that I'm the only one that thinks this way, uh, because you'll remember that a lot of our Christmas songs kind of tap into this. Uh, So for instance, you'll remember that famous song by Bing Crosby, where he says, I'll be home for Christmas. Uh, Now, after all this grand promise of being home for Christmas, he then says, if only in my dreams, right? Now, why does he say that? Well, it's because he's saying that there is a real sense in which I believe he's transported into the home with all of those warm memories that are associated with it around the time of Christmas. And whether he's able to be there physically or not, that's where his heart goes. Well, I believe that that same kind of thing happens uh, with many of us. Uh, For me, uh, I can't escape this season without being reminded of this rustic old nativity scene that I had in my home growing up. Uh, They had a little blue light in it that gave this really warm blue glow throughout our whole house during the Christmas season. It was the only time the lights in our house were blue, and it used to just give me all kinds of warm thoughts. And uh, as a little kid, I used to go to this nativity scene, and I I would take the, the wise men and the shepherds and some of my action figures, and I would do war with them. I would start to fight with them. Until one day when He-Man decapitated one of the wise men and uh, my mom got really angry. And so we had like a headless wise man for the rest of our family time when they would pull out that nativity scene. Yeah, so that was last year, but uh, we, we love nativity scenes and we love the warmth of the home. And, and what's interesting is, here's the deal, I believe actually the reason that Christmas draws our attention towards the home is because it reminds us of the reality that there is a home that all of us deep down inside of us desire. And I think that the wise men give us a picture of the reality that the home that we really desire is not a home that is as close to us as we think. See, when we look to Matthew 2, we are introduced to these wise men. Now we're picking back up in our Christmas cast series where we left off last week where we were talking about Herod. King Herod, of course, uh, is the king of the Jews and him and all of Jerusalem are troubled by the arrival of Jesus. But these wise men, these wise men are so excited about the arrival of the Christ that they travel a thousand miles to go view him in this manger. And what is fascinating is these magi look more like God's people in the response to God's son than the Jews do. And when Jesus arrives, God's enemies run to worship Jesus while God's people are looking to kill him. Now, our big idea this morning is that Jesus came to lead a people f- who were further from God than you can imagine to an eternal home with God. If you're taking notes, a great thing to write down. We're going to be thinking about this this morning, that Jesus came to lead a people who were further from God than you can imagine to an eternal home with God. Now, we see this first uh, in our first couple of verses. Uh, We're going to unpack this. And you'll notice first in verses 1 to 2 that God's enemies came to worship God's Son. God's enemies came to worship God's Son. Look at what what God's Word says there in the first two verses of chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, "'Where is he who has been born king of the Jews?' For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Now, Jews uh, were known for being xenophobic. They were fearful of outsiders. Now, they got it honestly. Because if you'll remember, in the history of the Jews, uh, they were often in exile and often persecuted. Uh, You look through the scriptures even, and you'll find that uh, it began with Egypt, Egypt, Uh, Egypt uh, were a people who held them in exile out of their land, who held them in captivity. And then later, Assyria and then Babylon. And then finally here, whenever these magi come, uh, they find a Jewish people who have been uh, under the rule of a a vicious Roman empire. And so uh, they knew that those who were outside were not usually good for them. They trusted God's Messiah or Christ was going to come an anointed king who would deliver the Jews and destroy their enemies, those outside forces who were over them. So you can only imagine how these pagan strangers befuddled the Jews, A, with the claim of an interstellar gram, announcing the birth of Christ, and B, that they've come to worship Him. Now, the the word for wise men, it's an interesting word, it's magoi. A word that we get our English words magi and magic from. Uh, So uh, when we think of these wise men, they're they're really magi. And and magi was a, a, a title that tells us, it tips us off, that these individuals that came to see Jesus were actually ethnically and religiously far from God. Now commentators say that these men likely were from either Persia or Babylon... Uh, that that's likely what most people say, but I'm actually betting on Babylon, modern Iraq, the home of those brutal magi that Daniel faced 500 years before when Nebuchadnezzar uh, drew them in his the people into exile. Now, why would I say that? Here's why. Catch this. I think this is really cool. Matthew two. If you trace through that text, what you'll find is that he quotes at least four prophets as he goes through. Uh, You'll notice that he quotes uh, Micah 5, Hosea 11, Jeremiah 31, and even a text from Numbers that we're going to talk about today. And each of those texts come within the context of God's people being in exile, being in captivity, and a promise that comes with it that one day uh, God Himself will come and lead His people out of exile. So, here, don't you think it would be just like God to orchestrate Babylonians who sent Judah into exile running to bow first before King Jesus? See, exile, all that means is that you are evicted from your home country and that you're not allowed back in. And these magi, they aren't really Chinese kings from the Orient, right? They're alien wizards and witches. So catch this, when Jesus shows up, here's the picture, Jewish leaders sit on it. Herod in all of Jerusalem, they don't go running to look for Jesus, but here we find Harry Potter and Gandalf come running to worship. But what is this Jesus star that they see in the sky that directs them to Christ? Uh, it's been identified in a lot of different ways. Uh, Kepler said that it was a supernova, others, Halley's Comet. But it seems to be supernatural. A supernatural kind of sign that is unique and special. Uh, very similar, I think, to the cloud of fire that led Israel by night through the wilderness. But notice here that it emerges in verse 9 again. And it doesn't just shoot up and sign that Jesus has come or the Christ has come to Jerusalem, but it actually hovers and leads them in to the manger where Jesus is. Now, I believe that Matthew here actually seems... To see this star as a fulfillment of Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24-17. Where it says, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise up out of Israel. See, Matthew, I don't think that he's encouraging us to check our horoscopes or condoning astrology. I don't think that's what he's saying with this star here. What I think he's doing is he's actually shocking the Jews and us at the long-awaited Christ, saying that He is actually good news for the nations. And not just the nations, for the enemies of the people of God. God is going to bless the enemies of the people of God through this Christ. See, Jesus came in to bring grace to strangers and to the enemies of God. Jesus came for the outsider and the alien. Now just catch this. God's heart for the nations didn't begin or end with the incarnation. God's heart for the nations, it did not begin or end with the incarnation. Hebrews 13.2 actually uh, connects for us. Uh, Abraham is is one of the, the forefathers of our faith and his love for strangers with our call as Christians today to love strangers. Uh, we find this in Hebrews thirteen two, where we're reminded of Abraham and Sarah's hospitality to strangers who turned out to be angels. Now, that's really strange, right? I mean, you think somebody different's coming over, and then, oh, by the way, we are actually spiritual beings who live with God. And here's what he says. He says, here's the incentive for Christians to be hospitable. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, this word for hospitality, it actually comes from a combination of two words, philo, which is uh, a kind of uh, love, and then zanos is a, a kind of a word for stranger, and so you've got love of stranger. That's where hospitality comes from. And so here, we see the hospitality is literally showing love to outsiders, to strangers. Now, Leviticus... It shows that God also had a heart for the stranger. The law is full of ways that God says, this is how you love a stranger who comes over, how you're to treat them. Now, Christian, let me just encourage you and ask you this morning a question just to think about your love for strangers. Do you know that you look so much like God when you invite people into your home and you show concern for them? When you show that you care about their lives, you care about where they stand with God, you care about physically how they're doing, how emotionally they're doing, and you're seeking to draw them towards Christ. Did you know that when you do that, you look like God, showing that kind of love for others, people who are strange or different than you? Now, even in his cradle, Jesus' enemies, God's enemies, were invited into his home. In fact, because all had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we know that we are all guilty before God, and we know everyone ultimately is a homeless outsider left to themselves, Right? So let me just encourage you, open up your home to other members of Trinity Bible Church. Open up your home to neighbors. Open up your home to to those who do not know Jesus Christ, who are not Christians. Open up your home to them and reflect the love of God. Invite stranger people over. Strange people. Now you might be thinking to yourself, like, what does that look like? Well, I will never forget whenever I was uh really I think I was maybe 7 years old and uh, we were invited over to this house and I thought we were getting lost in the woods. It was like a gravel road in you know the deep south and uh there were no more signs for roads. Uh, we didn't have like GPS on our phones and so it was getting really creepy and we were like maybe this is where people go to die like scary deaths. And so we finally sort of navigate and find this house and we go in and we 're sitting there, and um, we 're with the kids and then all of a sudden, I heard my mom kind of squeal a little bit, and we run in and uh, come to find out uh, they had been cooking for us, and they had made like this huge bucket of squirrel now. This is awesome. I had never had squirrel before. Uh, Little did I know that some people who, when they make squirrel for you, don't chop off the heads, and my mom didn't know that either. And so when she looked down in the bucket, she saw these eyes poke up and look back at her, and she thought it was still alive, and it really scared her. And so for me, that was like weird and different, right? But you know what really sticks with me, like here, like as I'm 30 years later thinking about that event? What a gracious thing that this family had us over and cooked for us. Now, yeah, maybe we need to be considerate and think about others and whether or not they're scared of, like, squirrel heads and stuff. But the fact that they loved us enough to invite us into their homes and share life with us, like, I'll never forget that drive into the woods for those people that loved us like that. You know, we need to be a people who are willing to open up our homes to others and love them sacrificially. See, people who are not Christians, you need to be inviting them over to your home. People who are, are of a different race, people who are... Younger or older Richer or poor More or less educated Democrats or Republicans And we need to care for and about them That's what God has called us to do As the God who loves strangers And here's the deal Hebrews tells us Who knows If you do this An angel just might show up So invite people over to your home See hospitality It isn't just for mature Christians Hospitality is a calling That matures Christians We're never too Uh, immature to start inviting people over. And as we invite people over, it would always make us more mature in Christ. You know, I love how Trinity Bible Church loves strangers. Uh, I I just, I I love the way that you love others and are so gracious to others that come into our body. That is a special gift. I am so thankful for you in that. Uh, I've told you before, I I recently had uh, a lady in our our office, we were doing um, an interview, and she said, Like, I don't know, do you like pay your members to be friendly to outsiders? Because everybody's so friendly. It's like, they must be getting something else out of it, right? And uh, the funny thing is, I hear that kind of thing all the time about you. But let me just say this. We always have room to grow, as much as I'm encouraged. And we always want to make sure that we continue to grow in this, especially as our body grows. So let's continue to grow in our display of the love of Christ for one another and the outsider. Let me give you a few quick ways that you can do that. Uh, One is... Pray regularly. Pray regularly that God will give you opportunities to share Christ and that you will faithfully respond. You know, I I love whenever God just gives me, like, one of those idiot opportunities to share the gospel, where it's so obvious that the person needs to hear about Christ that I feel like I would have to honestly be, like, rejecting Jesus and his immediate call to share Christ with them for me not to speak of Christ. Have you ever had those expectations where you're like, I don't want to do it, but, like, It would um, would be sinful not to, right? Pray that God would bring those kind of opportunities to you where He corners you and forces you to love somebody towards Jesus. Uh, Also, show up early to services. Show up early. Look for folks who you don't know. Now, maybe they've been here for a while and it's a great opportunity for you to get to know them. Or maybe it's a visitor who has come... Looking for answers about who God is And you get the special privilege Of sharing Christ with them Of answering the questions that they have Of entering into a relationship Where you get to disciple them towards Christ Third If they ask for prayer These people that that you see in the congregation Don't just say I'll pray for you And send them on their way Pray for them there in the moment You know I know sometimes You got busy stuff that will call you away But what a great opportunity to say You know what let me just go ahead And pray for you right now I want to pray for you Fourth Fourth Invite your friends to church. Invite your friends. Don't assume when they come that they know what's good for them spiritually. Be ready to train them, teach them through what it looks like to listen to the Word of God preach, to pray. Explain why we do what we do. Be ready to have answers to questions for people that are not used to the Gospel. And ask them questions and explain why we do what we do. But fifth, trust that the Holy Spirit is better than a star. In other words, when you're going, maybe you don't feel equipped to share Christ with others who are here, who are visiting. Maybe it makes you nervous and you're thinking, I don't know if I I really can do this right. Uh, Let me just tell you one of the best ways to do it is just do it. Like, Go up to them, love them in Christ, and trust if you're praying, if you're in the Word, if you see this person, that the Holy Spirit has already gone before you. He already goes before you leading people towards His Son. The Holy Spirit is ultimately the victor when anybody comes to Christ and just be an instrument that you allow God to use in their lives. Uh, But let's continue to be uh, a church who loves strangers because he prepares the way and helps us to love strangers when we feel unprepared. But don't miss this. The strangers here need more than nature to find God. Did you notice that? They needed God's word. So second, notice the Magi need more than nature to find Jesus in verses 3 to 8. Now look there with me again in Matthew 3 to 8, or 2, 3 to 8, and look what, what happens. There it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained for them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him bring me word that I too may come and worship him now we don't have a, a long time to tarry here and we looked at this last week but notice notice uniquely here that the scripture doesn't tell us how the magi knew how to interpret the star in other words we don't know what kind of constellation tipped them off we don't know who told them that this constellation was going to lead to a king coming from the jews but what we do know is is it something very natural in and of itself, a star, led these magi to Jerusalem. Now the Bible says that God's creation speaks to us revealing the character of God. So most of you have remembered uh, probably Psalm 19.1 that says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So in other words, that is a, a picture to us of a general revelation of God's, His character and His attributes through the creation that we see. And so here we find that there is a, a real sense in which creation can speak to us about the nature of who God is and who we are and how we are understand those things. Uh, that's why uh, when you go outside on a chilly night in Phoenix and you look up at the stars of heaven, and you, I think, have to be a really clever debater to argue in yourself into thinking that that's an accident, that the, the space and the stars and the planets, as they move and rotate and revolve, that that just kind of happened. I mean, planets spin and revolve around the sun, which is one of the one of a billion stars that dot the ceiling of our night. And we found that the closer technology enables us to look at the creation that we live in, the more stupefying the grandeur of the seemingly ever-expanding and maybe even infinite heaven seems. And yet the heavens declare God's power, His intelligence, and beauty. But did you notice that this extraordinary act of nature got the Magi to Jerusalem, but it couldn't bring them to the Savior? They needed God's people Israel to point them to God's special revelation his word the bible to get them to Christ and they quote Micah 5:2 the priests and the scribes direct these magi to Bethlehem where Jesus was to born to be born now catch this nature never tells us to make <clears throat> never tells us enough to make us responsible excuse me nature tells us enough to make us responsible for disobeying God but it doesn't tell us enough to save us. Romans 1.18-20 tells us this very thing. God has clearly revealed His invisible attributes through creation. But we all suppress the truth in unrighteousness and are without excuse. There's no excuse for our not worshiping God as God. But catch what this means. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are desperately in need of God's Word of grace to go to Jesus for the salvation that we all need. So natural death, that's one message as people die, that there is something wrong between us and God. That's why Romans 10 says that we need good news in the context of that bad news. And there we're told beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Why is the good news beautiful? Beautiful. Well, it's because the magi who are far from God needed God's word to find Jesus and Jesus to find God. So the good news is that when we put our faith in Christ, we simultaneously become homeless exiles because this world is not our home, and exiles with a home. Do, do you see that? Like, all of a sudden, what the gospel means is, is that we recognize that this is not our home. We are homeless exiles and sojourners, as Peter says but that we are exiles who have a better home that is coming. Now, don't miss this. Home isn't where your Christmas tree is. I know that's confusing. But home is not ultimately where your Christmas tree is. Home is where Christ himself is with the Father. That's our home. And if we don't really come to grips with that reality, then our lives are going to be difficult and dark Because that Christmas tree is not going to provide the kind of joy that we were made for. It is not going to provide the kind of lasting, eternal home that we look for. See, our great hope is in a person and not a place at this point in redemptive history. now Sometimes people ask uh, a question here. I think it's important to stop and ask in a lot of different ways. Okay, I know that you've got to hear the good news to believe in God and define salvation. But if God, if this is true, how can God really be fair? I mean, if faith only comes through responding to the good news, being preached by faith, then what do we do with that poor, innocent uh, guy in the, the backwoods of Malaysia who has never heard the gospel? Like, is it fair that he would be judged if, if he has never heard the gospel? I mean, is God going to judge him? Will he face the judgment of God if he hasn't heard the gospel? And my answer would be, of course not. Of course God's not going to judge like this innocent guy in Malaysia that's never heard the gospel. But here's the problem according to the Bible. There is no innocent guy in the backwoods of Malaysia. Uh, The gospel tells us that we have all been born as sinners against God. Aliens, rebels. uh, We need God's salvation, every one of us. None of us are innocent apart from God. Everyone is without excuse. So we've all suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and are altogether guilty. And we all need to be saved. Oh, but but this, see, this, this reality is what ought to drive us to take the gospel to the nations. Now I know it's so easy to become so consumed with the problems of our lives, and they are legion. But the reality is, even amidst the darkness of our lives, we're called to reach out into the darkness of the nations where people have not heard the gospel yet. That's why we as a church give 10% of our giving. Every dollar that you give goes to missions and oftentimes a lot more. That is not because we don't believe that we could find really good ways to spend 10% of our money. It's because we are convicted that the nations need to hear the gospel. And we get excited about seeing the gospel go in so many different ways out to the nation. Here's what's so amazing about God. When we do missions, we look like God who has a mission, who's on a mission to save others. See, he didn't send his son to save the innocent insiders. He sent his son to save guilty outsiders who were unworthy of receiving that gospel. He goes out and gets rebels and aliens and he brings them to his son Jesus so that they can worship someone so much better. than Those false gods that rob them of everything and give nothing back. See, Jesus came so that we could go. And when we do that, we look like our God. So friends, there's nothing more precious than the knowledge of God. Nothing more precious than the good news of what Christ has done to redeem sinners like you and me. In general revelation it lets you know that God is powerful, but special revelation invites you to know the God who is love, who has come to save sinners. And worship is the goal. And we find worship third where the the Magi worship Jesus. <clears throat> Did you see that? In verses 9 to 12, we find that these Magi, their response to Jesus is one of worship. Look there with me again, Matthew 2 verses 9 to 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So Herod sends the Magi out, telling them to send word back. And here what we find is that the star actually then reappears and guides them, hovers over Jesus. And when they saw it in verse 10, it says they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. The only real right response to Christ It's to rejoice in him. And as soon as they found Jesus with his mother, they fell down and worshiped him. Now, Jesus, he could have actually been like two years old at this point. And the shepherds were long gone. So if you're setting up your nativity saying and you want it to be really authentic, maybe you should just take the magi and stick them in the garage, right? Because they would have been like way behind the shepherds. But here, clearly, what we find is is that they came to worship Jesus. But what's not clear is, are they worshiping Him as God or as a great king? Do they see Him as this otherworldly Messiah, or do they just see Him as an earthly king who has arrived and will have authority? Now, clearly, here it simply saw Jesus as a rival king, and maybe the Magi do as well. But I like what Don Carson says here. He says this, If, if the Magi merely worshipped Him, As royalty and not deity, they worshipped better than they knew. And boy, didn't they? Either way, we know here that Matthew never refers to Herod as king again. And once the true King Jesus arrives, he is the king. Now, you might be asking, how many magi were there? How many magi were there? Nobody wants to say. It seems like a trick question. Well, we know that a lot of people have said different things, right? So Chrysostom said there were 12 Uh, I find, like, as I read a lot of older commentaries, that they say that um, the Catholic Church in the medieval period was saying that there were three because there were three gifts. I mean, that's good logic, right? So we don't really know. We don't know how many magi there were, but we do know they had three gifts, and they were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I don't think that these gifts were necessarily meant to symbolize anything. I think they were really expensive, nice gifts. From the region that they came from, so gold, gold is gold, uh, frankincense um, uh, was this uh, this substance that um, was basically like a, a glittering, odorous kind of gum, uh, real pricey and, and then myrrh myrrh was a spice and a perfume that they got from Arabian trees and it was used for embalming, so these were precious, valuable things now we do know that it 's likely that those precious Objects that were given to Jesus for worship were actually used to fund the trip that they took to Egypt when they were running from King Herod. So that's probably how they lived whenever they had to run into exile to get away from their country. But here, what we find is is that the Herod actually looks more like, the king of the Jews actually looks more like the Pharaoh who killed the children of Bethlehem as a small likeness to the Pharaoh that killed all the firstborn of Israel. What an irony. He's running to Egypt, where they originally were in slavery, to get away from the king of the Jews who's looking to take his life. Of course, the Pharaoh was fearful of the many, while Herod was fearful of the one, King Jesus. And those far off here are worshiping King Jesus. Now catch this. This is the goal of missions. If you're wondering what the goal of of missions is and what God is is hoping to, the fruit that he's hoping to bring about as we share Christ with others, it is not just decision, it is worship. We want, as as John Piper says, to see worshipers made where worshipers were not. We, We long to see people worship God as God. That's good for God, but it's also good for us. It's the best for us as we worship God as we were created to be. See, God created us for upward relationship with himself, and he also created us for outward relationship with others. And when we are reconciled to God, worshiping him increasingly as we ought, and he deserves, we're more human for it. But don't miss this. Maybe you're thinking to yourself like, yeah, we need to go out and love strange people here. Them. Those outsiders, those weirdos, those people that aren't like us, don't talk like us, don't look like us, don't have the jobs we have, don't hang out in the places we have. But you know what's interesting here is as we read this text, we are the strangers. We are those who are far from God, who have been called to God. We're the strangers that were not worshippers of God, but have been made to be worshippers. We need more worshipers of God, and we are part of God's grand plan to do that. We need more local churches. Well, let me just like, put a plug in here for this. Uh, I was talking with a number of evangelical leaders uh, recently, and they were sharing how they've been studying missiology or missions over the last four decades. And here's what they found. It is great that we are looking to make worshipers where worshipers are not and reaching unreached people groups. Here's a problem that we're finding. When we reach unreached people and we don't, we don't plant a local church, we have almost exclusively found that there is always regression. We lose that people group. But catch this, where we have planted a church with a people group that has not been reached, what we have found is not only do we find that there is a living, breathing, continual testimony, we find that they also have a heart to plant other churches where people have not yet been reached. So do you see that? Like, we need in our missions to have a desire and a heart to see local churches of worshipers who are committed, who are, the, uh, who are seeking to, to hold and affirm the truths of the gospel, if we want to see more folks come to Christ who have not yet heard of Him. But where churches are planted amongst unreached, we see churches growing and progressing, not regressing. But all of us, I believe, will love strangers better, hear this... When we realize that we are the strangers that God saved. Don't miss this. This morning, I think that one of the things that we forget so easily is that we are strange. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever looked at like other families and started analyzing? like Maybe you don't do this, but you're like, well, that's kind of weird the way they do that. And maybe you, during Christmas time, have other parts of your family that come over and they're like why do they do it that way you're like they're so strange have you ever thought that maybe if everybody else is strange maybe they're not the strange ones but you are i think that's kind of the reality that god wants to bring home to us we are the strangers and aliens every one of us and we are the ones that need to be brought home so hear this Hear this, we need to be reminded regularly of how strange we are if we are going to love other strangers. So every Sunday as we sing together, we herald the God who so loved strangers, strangers like you and me, even His enemies, that He sacrificed His Son for us. And these magi, they run to worship Jesus because Jesus came to rescue them. You struggle to love others? and share the love of Christ with them? There might be lots of reasons why, but could it be because you've seen yourself as a spiritual local who had inherited grace, rather than a spiritual alien who's been rescued by grace? See, the Magi's home was wherever Christ was. The Gospel makes us homeless exiles, and exiles with a home all at once. Don't miss this. A stranger, a stranger who has been loved, knows how to love strangers. Stranger who has been loved knows how to love people who are different than them. But catch this. Jesus came to bring exiles home. Jesus came to bring exiles home. Notice fourth, that Jesus became an exile to lead the greater exodus. Jesus became an exile to lead a greater exodus. So in verse 12, a dream warns the magi. And so they, they don't go back to Herod. They, they just They get out of town, sort of in the dark of night. They disappear. And then in verses 13 to 15 a dream warns Joseph to run to Egypt. Now Matthew explains Jesus going to Egypt saying in verses 13 to 15 that it fulfills Hosea 11:1 where we find Hosea saying out of Egypt I have called my son. Now there in context in Hosea Hosea is reminding the people of Israel how God delivered them out of Egypt during the Exodus. And then he promises that a greater future Exodus where God will come like a great lion and lead his people out of exile and return them to their homes. So there's a a promise of deliverance, a greater future deliverance that is coming for the people of God in Hosea. But here's what's interesting. Hosea 11.1 speaks of Israel as God's son. But Matthew says... Jesus, the individual, is now God's son fulfilling this. Now, some commentators, when they look at this, they say, I think Matthew is just a little bit fancy with the text. He's playing a little fast and loose. He's not using his Bible very well. Now, let me just let you know that like my predisposition towards that. Is it like, that's junk. Like, I always think that, you know, people that are writing the Bible inspired by the Spirit, like, have a better view towards understanding Scripture than I do. That's just sort of like my knee-jerk reaction. So when I look at this, I don't think so. I think Matthew sees Jesus as the new and greater Israel who willingly stepped down from his throne in his home in heaven to take on human flesh, willingly becoming an exile to lead his people out as, catch this, the great lion of the tribe of Judah. You see it? Here's the lion who has come and he has roared and he has put fear in sin, death, and the devil, promising that their demise is sure. So that he is leading them out of a greater exodus than the exodus that Moses led Israel out of in Egypt. He is leading them out of an exodus that is away from sin, death, and the devil. He is rescuing them spiritually and forever. He is taking them from a place where they are homeless. A place where they are futureless. A place where they can't count on anything staying or being permanent. To a home that is eternal, forever, and joyful, and with God. So he's both the lamb who laid down his life for our sins to bring us all the way home to God and the great lion who roared and devoured sin, death, and the devil, creating a new humanity destined for an eternal home. Here's the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. Jesus enthroned or entered this world as an outsider to invite insiders to be in the world but not of the world. Do you see how backwards that sounds? That's exactly what he did for us. Jesus entered this world as an outsider to invite insiders to be in the world and not of the world. In other words, freedom in Christ means becoming exiles in this world. And the gospel invites us to be both kings and exiles. Loved by God, hated by the world. That's pretty upside down. But that's why the Bible says that those who have put their faith in Christ become sojourners and exiles. That doesn't mean we don't have a home. It just means that it's not here yet. So please don't miss this. We have all got a longing for shalom in the home. I believe that that peace that we desire in home where everything works right and everybody's happy and everybody has peaceful relationships is something that every human desires. That's not just a Christian desire. That's a non-Christian desire. That's a desire of every person on the face of the planet. And it might have different names and different styles, but at its root, we, we want peace at home. And what we find here is the gospel has come and met us in this and explained it. See, we've longed for the shalom in the home, and that's all, that all-encompassing peace and joy. But this hope of a future home is found here in a person and not a place at this point. If you're looking for that peace, that peace is only to be found in Christ until it is to be found in the new heavens and the new earth. So the great irony, I think, in this text is that the political and ethnic Jews in this story think they are insiders at home, and the Magi are the outsiders and visitors. But in reality, the Magi look like they're more at home than even the Jews are with Christ. And maybe, maybe that's you today. Like, maybe you're just imagining yourself as an insider without having truly come to Christ. You know, did you know that you can place your faith in God's means of grace? without actually putting your confidence and trust in God's man of grace, Jesus Christ? In other words, Jesus is the only ark that will save you amidst the flood of God's wrath that's coming. Everything else sinks if it doesn't lead back to a confidence in Christ. And here's what I mean by that. Faithfully coming to church, if you're a believer, it it, it grows your faith. Being born into a Christian family into a godly home where, where Christ is exalted and savored and rejoiced in is a, a wonderful blessing. It's a unique blessing that you shouldn't, you shouldn't be in any way ashamed of. You should be grateful of. Baptism, communion, church membership all offer a critical encouragement that you are walking faithfully with Jesus. But don't miss this. All of these generous means of grace can that we have been given by God Himself can sink us if they aren't driven by a heart that knows that none is born on the inside with God. Every one of us needs to put our faith in Christ. We are all born outsiders as enemies of God apart from faith in Christ alone. I love what one of my favorite Scottish pastors of the past, Horatius Bonner, says in a, a hymn titled, Not What My Hands Have Done. He says... In this song, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Now what I feel, not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine. And with unfaltering lip and heart, I call this Savior mine. If if that's not you this morning, put your faith in Christ. Not just in the things of grace or the means of grace, but the man of grace. There's another thing, lastly, that I think that we see here. There's another word of hope for those of you who long for home. Maybe this morning you are longing for home in a number of different ways. Maybe you think in this season a, a, a family. If you had a family that you don't have, that it would fulfill your hope for a home. Or maybe you long for a a home that you've had in the past that that you have warm memories of. You know, you don't remember the fights and you don't remember the difficulties and the dissensions. All you remember are the good things, the good times, and you fear you'll never get that home back again. Or maybe you fear that you will lose the home that you have right now, that something's going to come and disrupt it. And it will. Maybe you're jealous for a happy home that you imagine someone else has. I think a lot of people actually church hop because they have a longing for community and friendship and meaningful relationship, which is code for home, where they are accepted and loved and can build something that will last. And they never quite satisfy that inner longing for belonging. But here's why this matters. See, I believe the difference between Christians and non-Christians, as I said before, is not that one longs for home and one doesn't. The difference is that Christians know where that home they long for really is. And maybe this morning, you didn't know this And you need to be reminded of this. And you need to continue to remind yourself of this. That when that longing hits your heart for home, and you feel so dissatisfied with anything and everything that this world has to offer, and you never feel like you're at home or receive that peace that you want, that God is just telling you that what you desire, it's actually yet to come. There is more to come. You are settling for what's here and now. And there is something in the future that awaits you that is beyond what you can believe. And that's why your heart is always restless. That is why you always feel like you've never gotten home. It's because that day is yet to come. See, historically, God's people have mostly been in exile. I don't think that there is an accident in that. See, God's people, always, mostly, in exile. Always out of the land. Always away from God's promised land where God wants to meet with His people. And why is that? Because He wants us to know that there is something better yet to come. We're not home yet. I love what Hebrews 13, 11, 13-15 says. This is why God loves exiles. People don't feel like they've gotten home. He says God's people are all ultimately renters waiting on our forever home. You know what I'm talking about? We're all renters. We're waiting on that forever home. But catch this. It's not on Peoria Avenue. It's not on Deer Valley. No, he says, speaking of all of the godly people of the past, Abraham, Sarah, and others, he says, "...these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar." And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. You see it? They want a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone, right? Canaan, they would have had opportunity to return. But they didn't. They see there was something more that was coming. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city, a heavenly Zion. That place, Revelation 21 and 22, promises us. Do you see it? These magi traveled a thousand miles from their earthly home on the first Christmas and were closer to their ultimate home than ever when they were with Jesus in a manger. See, Christmas ought to give us eyes of hope for heaven and of the nations. We should not settle for Xboxes or switches. That's a, an electronic device for you don't know. Zelda and stuff. We shouldn't settle for really pretty jewelry. We shouldn't settle for good meals. We shouldn't settle for those things. We, shouldn't, we should enjoy our family and be grateful to God, but always with an eye towards the more that is to come. Every good, sweet thing that you have reminds you that this is just a foretaste of what is to come. And all of those bad things, all those lonelinesses, all those uh, gifts that just don't quite measure up, all those family fights that just aren't quite what you prepared for, and you think this just isn't right, those two are reminders of a home that is yet to come. I love what C.S. Lewis says when he says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. See, this is the good news of Christmas. Jesus came to lead people who were further from God than you can imagine to an eternal home with God. Do you long for that home? I hope that you do. If you don't, I'd love to tell you about it. Don't leave without talking to me. Let's pray.